we're going to be working through Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. And as you turn there, I want to dismiss Hubtown Kids. So if you're ages 3 to 5, you can head to my right, uh, probably your left, and head up there with Miss Wendy and learn about God, particularly learning this about God, that He is all-powerful. He is all-powerful. Think about this, kiddos. Think about this, moms and dads. Has there ever been a thing that you tried to do, you attempted to do, and you just couldn't figure it out? You couldn't get it done. That's never, ever happened to God. Now, many of you children are probably thinking that's never happened to your father either, and yet it has. Uh, they've come to the end of, their, of themselves, to the end of their own means, and that is something that has never happened to God. And uh, they're going to learn a little bit more about that. If you've got your copy of God's Word, though, as they're heading that way, we will turn to Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30, and we'll head this way. Last week, we learned about this, that God has called His church to shine as lights in the darkness. Today, we're going to learn about two interestingly bright lights that are shining in the sky, even now today. We get to see those lights Uh, even though in some ways they've gone out long ago, but it takes time for the stars going out to actually reach the earth. And so we'll get to look at the lives of Timothy and Epaphroditus as they shine brightly in the night sky. Uh, Let's look to God's word now, though. Verse 19, Philippians chapter 2. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you so that I may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me with the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will also come to you. I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So, Receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Let's ask God to bless the reading of his word. Father, there is no power in this man. There is no power in this body assembled unless it be assembled around your word. So we turn to it now. We pray that by the power of your spirit, you would meet us here and that your church, again, Father, would be fed. We ask these things, Jesus, in your power, the all-powerful name of Jesus. Amen. You know, you can learn a lot about somebody by hearing who their role models were growing up. So we're going to do a little bit of an exercise. I want you to just take a minute, and I want you to think about your role models growing up. Maybe you're like me, and you're thinking, I haven't thought about my own personal role models in a long time. Maybe you're thinking, not in this place. I don't, I don't want to bring that up. I don't want people to know. 
who I look to as a role model. But I want you to think about it. You don't have to share it. I will be the only one sharing my shameful role models for you this morning. Think about your own. Depending on which decade you grew up, grew up in, it may be more or less embarrassing. Maybe if you grew up uh, earlier than the 80s, maybe if your role models were in the 70s or the 60s or the 50s or even the 40s, uh, you have shame in other ways. Maybe you'd be ashamed of your age, uh, but uh, at least nobody would know uh, just how shameful they should be. At any rate, let me share a few of my own. One, Donatello. He was so wise. Not only was he wise, but he was a great leader. Raphael, Splinter, I looked up to Splinter. Switching gears, John Rambo, Chuck Norris. Now, if, you're, if you grew up in the 90s and in the 2010s or in the 20s, you don't even know who Chuck Norris is. So, Baloo the Bear, another one of my but not from Jungle Book, from Tailspin, the greatest cartoon ever. This is the embarrassing part, Captain Planet. And then finally, as way of redemption, I'll share Michael Jordan. I would ask that as you hear my list of those role models that I looked to, and that is not exhaustive or complete, I would ask that you not judge me. I may have looked to a man-sized talking rat for wisdom, but he spoke Japanese, also knew karate, and at least he wasn't a talking dinosaur, and I know a lot of you uh, have, uh, have uh, no room to talk. But as far as we see in this passage, Paul loves the church, and Paul himself has a role model, the role model that he has looked to in his life as it relates to the church, the one who is influencing him the most is Jesus Christ himself. Paul loved the church. He learned to love the church. Why? Because Jesus Christ loved the church. Before we get into our text this morning, you need to know that foundational piece, that Jesus loves the church. Jesus loves the church. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 27 and uh, 25, 26 and 27, the Apostle Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Hagerstown Church, Jesus gave himself for you. He gave himself for you. At the beginning of Philippians chapter 2, Paul calls the church to have the same mind in themselves that Christ had. It was a It was a mindset of humility, of love, of laying your own desires, your own interests and preferences aside and serving the church. Jesus calls us to do the very thing that he has already done. He gave himself for the church. He died for the church. And by the way, what does that say about the church's value? Think about that. What does it say about the church? church's value that God the eternal son of God 
the eternal second person in the Trinity, laid his life down and became obedient to death, even death on the cross, to purchase the church. It's incredibly valuable. He gave himself for the church. And furthermore, this text says that he's sanctifying the church. He's cleansing the church. He's washing the church with the water of the word. Incidentally, that's what he's doing right now. He gave us his word. We gather around the word. We sing the word. We pray the word. We preach the word. We enact the word. We're being washed with the word of God. And he's doing that. As his word is preached and sang and practiced, he's washing his church. He's concerned about the spiritual health and the well-being of the church. Hagerstown, church, he's concerned about your spiritual health. He's concerned about the well-being of this body and the universal body. You might be asking this morning, Jesus loves the church, but what is the church? Well, throughout the New Testament, we see this word, ecclesia, Ecclesia, and it's not really a religious word. It's, where, it's, it's the translation that we would take is it's the church. But what does it mean, ecclesia? Well, the first century folks wouldn't have thought of it as some sort of religious word or some sort of a new word. It, it wouldn't be odd for them to, to hear the word church in their day and in their language. It simply meant the gathering. It simply meant an assembly. So when the Bible talks about the church, it it has one of two forms in mind, either the universal assembly, the universal gathering, or the local assembly, the local gathering. Incidentally, more times than not, when the Bible uses, when the New Testament speaks of the church, it's a reference not to the universal church, but to the local church. Hagerstown Church, you are a local church. You're a local assembly. One theologian, he's an aspiring ecclesiologist, Jonathan Lehman, He helps us here. He gives us a definition of the universal church. He says this, the universal church is a heavenly and eschatological assembly of everyone, past, present, and future, who belongs to Christ's new covenant and kingdom. The universal church is a heavenly and eschatological assembly of everyone, past, present, and future, who belongs to Christ's new covenant and kingdom. It's this idea that Heavenly, not here, but there is the universal church. And eschatological, it's future. This assembly of everyone together. The picture is past, present, and future saints gathered together in the universal church. In a sense, it's invisible now. We can't see the invisible church. We know about the invisible church. We believe it exists and one day we will gather as, we'll, we'll assemble together as that universal church manifest in the presence of Christ. That's the universal church. But Lehman continues, the local church is a mutual affirming group of new covenant members and kingdom citizens identified by regularly gathering together in Jesus' name through preaching the gospel and celebrating the ordinances. If you're not a Christian, know that this is what the church is. Jesus has changed us at the very core. He's given us new desires. He's called us out from the world to something more beautiful than the world could ever fathom, more pleasurable than we have ever experienced. 
And now as this new people, we're called to gather around, here it is again, his word regularly. We gather around his word regularly until he returns to bring us all to heaven. To set things right here on earth, finally. He loves his church and he's calling others to join his church. And maybe he's calling you this morning. Maybe he's calling you to turn from your sins and to look to this perfect and holy God for salvation because he offers it. And so would you answer him? Would you join by the power of Christ that universal church and anchor yourself in a local church? Yes, God is perfect. He's holy. And you are so full of sin. You've messed up big time. That's all of us though. Jesus loves to take broken people and he loves to put them back together. And so the invitation for you this morning is to trust in Jesus, to pay your sin debt and trust him to give you his righteousness, to wear as clothes. He forgives and takes your sinful, filthy clothes and he wears them on the cross. Jesus forgives those who look to him for help. And that's what the church is made up of. That's what the church is comprised of. And yes, Jesus, again, loves his church, universal and local. Jesus gave his life for the church. He also gave the church certain persons or or offices to help build up the church and to serve it with the word of God. One particular case is the example of the apostle Paul. He's an apostle. Ephesians chapter 4 verses 11 through 14 say this about apostles and other offices that God gives the church through Christ. It says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints, to equip the church for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, for building up the body of Christ, which is again the church. And they're to do that until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Christ gave to the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. And we're going to see the benefit of Christ, one of the benefits of Christ giving, particularly apostles, next week. As the Apostle Paul calls the Philippians to beware of false doctrine. He's going to do that next week. By the way, one of the ways that we can have better sermons here is if we have better preaching and better listening. And one of the ways you can be a better listener is by Hey, jump ahead of the gun and next week, come, already haven't read the the first pericope or uh, passage there in uh, Philippians chapter three. It will be a great help to you. At any rate, Jesus gave apostles to the church. He gave prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. What What does he do? He sent apostles. He sent messengers with this truths, with the truths of the of this word. He loves the church, and so he sends these. And these who he has sent also love the church. Namely, we see here as an example, Paul. Personally sent by Jesus to serve and build up the church. So Jesus loves the church, and so did Paul. Paul's role model was Jesus. Right? Think of this. Paul, after speaking of Jesus leaving heaven, coming in and dying on the cross for the sins of his people, 
says this, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Don't forget, where is Paul? Paul's in prison. There's a chance. Now, it's unlikely in Paul's mind. He believes at this point that God has given him uh, this, uh, that God is going to free him from prison, that God will spring him from this by his own power and send him on to do more work. And yet at the same time, there's a chance that Paul will die there in Rome or wherever he is. We believe most likely he's in Rome. Paul says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, even if I am to die here for your good and for the gospel, for the sake of the furthering of the gospel, he said, I rejoice and you should rejoice as well. Who does that sound like? Jesus. He really was following in the footsteps of Jesus. Jesus did that very thing. His life was the sacrificial offering. And Paul's saying, if my life that doesn't atone for everything is a drink offering poured out on the offering of Christ's work, so be it. I will gladly lay my life down. You see, he saw the incredible value that Jesus placed on the church. Paul followed Jesus' example. He was willing to pour out his life for the church at Philippi. And here's the main idea that I hope that you get from this passage as we're about to begin to work through it. Here's the main idea. Pour out your life for the flourishing of the church. It's worth it. Pour out your life for the flourishing of the church because it is worth it. We've just learned this past week, I I mentioned a few moments ago, how the church is to shine individually and collectively as bright stars in the night sky. Paul says, let your light shine. If we keep that theme in mind as we enter into this passage, uh, passage, you'll see that Paul for us is pointing out two really, really bright stars in the sky. Just the other night, I was sitting out by the fire, looking up at the sky, I saw the moon. It was incredibly bright, and it was beautiful. And I noticed, I'm not very observant, I'm not a stargazer, but I noticed a bright star in the sky. I wondered, is that the North Star? First, I thought it was something else. It was so large. Maybe it was a planet. I don't know. But it was sticking out just out of, of the sea of black and a blanket of, of small, uh, lesser stars. There was this one bright one grabbed my attention and this is essentially what Paul is doing for us as he enters into some administrative work in this passage he points out two bright stars and those are Timothy and Epaphroditus the first example that we get from Paul in chapter 2 is of Christ let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus but then Paul Paul also points to himself and he says hey look at me I'm ready to pour my life out. You should rejoice in that. I'm following Christ. But now in this passage, he points to two others. Here these men, they they believed and followed the call that Paul was announcing for them that Jesus is worthy of your life, that the gospel is worthy of your life, and so pour out your life. These two young men believed that. And so Paul's letter to the Philippians It was simply that. Not simply that. It was no less than that. It was a letter. Chapter 2, verse 19 to 30, Paul includes, right, just some secretarial work, working out some scheduling details. He he wants them to know that, that he wants another update from them. Hey, I'm looking forward to hearing an update from you. I'm planning to send Timothy. 
And I also, he says, I want you to hear an update on my situation. And so that's why I've written this letter. But there'll be more information that's being released as my case continues to, be, to go, through, go to, uh, to trial. He says, I want to see you again. I hope to come soon. I'm going to send Timothy first. Uh, and maybe on the surface, we, we read in these verses that it's not really a, anything helpful for us. It may seem that there's not much meat on the bones, as it were, in the, in the text for us today. But this letter is divinely inspired, as Timothy, or Paul reminds Timothy in 2 Timothy. Hey, it's profitable for doctrine. It's profitable for teaching. And so we're going to work this morning through these verses, almost as if it were a landmine. We're going to sift through the earth and try to gather out what, what is valuable. And I believe that we will be blessed as we sift through this dirt and we see these two role models we hear what Paul says about them, then I believe we'll find out that they're much more impressionable or uh, helpful for those who are impressionable, far more helpful than Captain Planet and even, yes, Chuck Norris. And so let's look at Timothy and Epaphroditus. First, I want to just ask two questions. We'll work through this text. What sort of man was Timothy and what sort of man was Epaphroditus? First, verse 19. What sort of man was Timothy? I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. Just notice this about Paul. Uh, his hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, oftentimes we look at this, we hear that, and we think, well, that's just church speak. Paul hopes in the Lord, right? But that's not true. Every single believer is in Christ. And because of that union that we have with Christ, everything should be in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says that uh, he loves the, the uh, Philippian church in the Lord in verse 8, chapter 1. He says that in the Lord, uh, his, he has grounds for confidence, that he rejoices in the Lord, both in chapter 3, verse 4, and in chapter 4, verses 10. We've not got there yet. And he, furthermore, he says he desires that others rejoice in Christ. And that Christian leaders would, would come and lead in the Lord. Paul hoped to send Timothy. He hoped in the Lord because everything that Paul did was in accordance to the will of the Lord. And we see now that that's also true of Timothy. Remember that Paul had a protege. He had a, he had a, a follower of, his, of, of sorts. He had somebody looking up to him as a role model, and that was Timothy. You'll remember when we first started our Philippian study that Paul picked up Timothy on, on his missionary journey and said, this guy is incredible. He's well thought of by outsiders. He's really solid. This guy needs training, and the Lord will use him. And so he takes Timothy with him. Timothy was with Paul when they came to Philippi that first time. And that miraculous planting of the church took place. And Paul was saying, I'm planning to send that guy, Timothy, that you know very well. I'm planning to send him to Philippi soon in order that he could gather a report and also that he could give an update. Why? He wants verse 19, to be cheered by news. Furthermore, he says of Timothy's nature and character, he says, I have no one like him. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Verse 21, he says, for they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is lifting up Timothy and saying, look at this guy. He's a role model. He has genuine concern for you, church at Philippi. And when he comes to you, I want you to treat him like you would me. We are like-minded, he says. He's just like me. He's concerned for you. Incidentally, if he's just like Paul, in some sense, he's just like Christ. In contrast to Timothy is this other group. We're not exactly sure who's in that group. 
But we know that they're claiming to be Christians, likely maybe even are. But they're not as concerned for the work of Christ in the church there in Philippi. And it says that they were seeking their own interests. Warren Wearsby offers this observation. I think it's really helpful. He says, in a very real sense, all of us either live Philippians chapter 1, 21, or Philippians chapter 2, verse 21. Look back in your Bibles. Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. What does it say? For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Wearsby, I think, wisely is saying either that's your testimony, to live is Christ, and to die is gain, or your life verse is verse 21 of chapter 2. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. I want you to ask yourself this morning, which one of those verses, if those are your only two options, which one is yours? Do you seek your own interests and not Jesus Christ's? Or do you seek Christ? And is it true of you that for you to live is like Christ living through you, doing his desires, his work, accomplishing what he has for you? What is Jesus interested in? What does Jesus love? Brothers, sisters, friends, so clearly we've seen this morning that Jesus loves the church. What does Timothy love? Timothy loves the church as well. Particularly, Timothy loves Philippi Church. Genuinely interested in what is taking place in that city and wants to give his life, like Paul, to pour out his life if need be for the saints gathered there. Some of you, as you think about this call, to follow Timothy or to follow Paul in the same way that Jesus did, to, to love the church and to serve the church and to lay your life down for the church. Maybe some of you can't help but thinking, think about the hurt that you've experienced by the hand of those in the church. Maybe when you look at the church, you only see the church's flaws. Remember, that the church is not perfect. The church is flawed. And though that is an understatement of sorts, it's also true that Christ loves the church, having known its flaws. It's helpful to listen to the words of Charles Spurgeon as he speaks and thinks of the church. He says this, The church is not perfect, but woe to the man who finds pleasure in pointing out her imperfections. Christ loved his church. And let us do the same. I have no doubt that the Lord can see more fault in His church than I can. And I have equal confidence that He sees no fault at all because He covers her faults with His own love, that love which covers a multitude of sins. And He removes all of her defilement with that precious blood which washes away all the transgressions of His people. This morning, I'm sure that you can see faults as difficult as it is for me to believe, I'm sure many of you can even see faults in this man and in this gathered body, Hagerstown Church. And yet at the same time, know this, that when Christ, when God, rather, looks at this church, he sees the righteousness of Christ. 
We praise God for that. And we also embrace and engage the church knowing that even though Christ has covered our transgressions, we still have been called to walk in newness of life. The church still needs to be edified. Still needs to be strengthened. And that's the work that the church does with itself and with those whom it gathers. So Timothy is listening to the words of Paul Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Don't do anything. Don't be motivated by your own pain. Don't be motivated by your own self-protection. He says, no, don't do that. But instead, have humility and count others as more significant than yourselves. He says, let not each of you look to his own interests, but also look to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And Paul is saying of Timothy, just a few verses later, Timothy is more concerned about the interest of others. What a beautiful thing. Paul speaking, Timothy listening. We do the same. But Paul continues in verse 22. He says, but you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. Like a father and son duo, these two guys teaming up to to see the gospel uh, be effective there in Philippi. Paul and Timothy working together with the same mind, looking like each other, talking like each other, using the same language, the same tools uh, to see uh, the servants of Christ there in Philippi strengthened. Philippians chapter 1 verse 1, the very first few verses, Paul says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, serving together, serving together. Philippi. Verse 23 says, I hope to send therefore to him, uh, therefore to, or I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust that the Lord, that shortly I myself will come also. He, he, he wants them to know that, that even though he, he's sending Timothy, hopefully that he's a qualified brother. He's just like him, has the same mind, cares for them just as he does. And Paul says, I'm also, I'm also planning to come as soon as possible. How do we know that Timothy was genuinely, though, how do we know that he's genuinely concerned for the interest of those in Philippi? One way is to look at his schedule. That's one way that I think Paul, with confidence, can say, hey, this guy cares about you. Well, how do we know anything about Timothy's schedule? Well, we know when Paul said, hey, I'm going on a missionary journey, and uh, I don't really know exactly where we're going, but we're going to go plant some churches, and I think I'm going to go in that direction. We'll, We'll see what the Spirit does. Timothy's like, I'm in. Paul's like, don't you need to check your schedule? Done. Already cleared it. I'm all in. Furthermore, when Paul says, hey, somebody needs to go and visit the church at Philippi, Tim's like, hey, send me. Here am I, Paul. Send me. He loved the church at Philippi. and He made it a priority to avail himself to them. I'm going to ask you this morning, what is on your schedule? What's on your schedule? The things that you make time for are the things that you find important. What's on your schedule? I'm not so foolish to believe that those who are following in the footsteps of Christ, that those who have poured themselves out for the church will look that much different than those who have not. Many of us will still care for our children, we'll still work, we'll still go on vacation, we'll still put money in savings, we'll do all of these normal things, we'll go to soccer games and softball games and we'll shop at the grocery store, but ultimately, 
the things that find their, themselves on the schedule in the life of a Christian who has poured his life out for Christ's church ultimately say those things are there for that end, not for one's own. They're there for Christ's interest in the church, not for my own interest here in this life. Timothy was a man given to God. He was consumed with Christ's mission in the church. His schedule demonstrated it. He poured his schedule out for the flourishing of the church, universal and local. And he said this about that sacrifice. It is worth it. That was our dear brother Timothy. And now let's go, let's turn our attention to the other bright star in the sky. And let's ask the question, what sort of man was Epaphroditus? What sort of man was Epaphroditus? Well, we know this about Epaphroditus. He was sent by Philippi Church to bring gifts, both financial and others, uh, to Paul and to help stay and serve him in a way, uh, really any way possible. But now, at this point in time, Paul is sending this guy back. Verse 25, Paul says, I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. He says, hey, you've sent this guy to me and he's served me well and now he'll carry this letter back to you. Paul says, I've thought it necessary. The reason why he's back is he's carrying this letter. He brought me your gift and now he's bringing you my letter. And Paul says of this guy that he is a brother. He says he's a brother in the faith. Paul was convinced that this man was a true Christian. He saw this man's love for Christ's church. And Paul said of this man, I love him like a brother. He's a brother to me. Furthermore, he says he's a, he's a fellow worker. He was sharing in Paul's labor there in the jail. As he could, where he was able, he would serve alongside of Paul. He worked side by side. Does that maybe drum up some language from the passage that we looked at two weeks ago? Paul continues to say he's not just a fellow worker and a brother, but he's a fellow soldier. He has shared in my fight. Paul, when he comes to the end of his life, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I've finished the race. And here, because of that, we can look back and say Paul was thinking of in that moment that that race that he was finishing, that fight that he was completing, that Epaphroditus, at least for some point in time, was fighting alongside of him, fighting with him, not against him, but next to him, just as we looked at with the, or the uh, Greek flanks. And so every soldier is not a sniper nor a general. Some work in the kitchen, some send letters. And that's what our man Epaphroditus is doing now. He's serving as a fellow soldier. Notice this, that the brother, worker, and soldier, they all have the same article. So it's almost like they're a, a set of Russian nesting dolls just kind of climaxing here. Not only is this guy a brother, but he's a co-worker. And not only is he a co-worker, but at the heart of this guy, he is a soldier and he's fighting for you. He's fighting in the Lord's army, so to speak. All the ways that Paul was calling the Philippians to relate to one another, Epaphroditus is caring for Paul in those ways. He's serving as a brother. He's serving as a co-worker right next beside each other. And they're fighting together, holding the line, not scattering, but staying even when things are difficult. And notice, Paul says those things about his relationship with this guy, with Epaphroditus. But he goes on to say, he's your messenger. It's the same word as apostle. Now, he's not an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's an apostle of the Philippians. He's a sent one, right? He has a message. He has a mission. And that mission given to him by the church at Philippi was to serve 
Paul. Paul also calls him a minister. He says he's, your, he's my minister sent by you. He was sent by the Philippians to care for Paul. The things that Paul lacked, the Philippians met that need, including by, by in, in, encouraging Epaphroditus to stay and to serve Paul. But now he has chosen, the Apostle Paul, to send Epaphroditus back. His work is complete, and he sends him back. Look at verse 26. Why is he sending him back? Paul says, For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. What's happened? Eman is distressed. He's tore all to pieces because in his absence, he's become sick. In his travel, he's taken ill. Many of us can relate to that. Different plagues and various things travel throughout our, 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 our area. Paul was struggling, or Epaphroditus was struggling with us, maybe a similar sickness. He's, he's fallen ill, unable to return to his brothers there in Philippi, hoping to serve Paul, maybe not able now because of his sickness. And Paul says, I'm going to send him back. Why? Because in this time away, we don't know how long it is, but in this time away, he's not been able to serve Paul because he's been providentially hindered by his illness. To, he didn't, he's not been able to serve in the way that he wanted to. And also, Philippi Church is like, hey, we want our brother back. We want to see him again. We want him to be healthy. We want him to be able to continue to serve here in Philippi. It's likely that Epaphroditus was an elder. We know, we don't, we know so little about him. He's only mentioned here. But it's likely he's an elder. And they're saying, we want him back. And Epaphroditus is saying, I want to be back. And Paul says, he really was sick in verse 27. He really was sick. And in his sickness, he almost died. And again, that word got back to Philippi. And it's caused our man, E-man, to be distressed. Interestingly, the only time that that word distressed is ever used in the New Testament is speaking of Jesus in Gethsemane. The distress that Jesus had right before he takes on the sins of the world and faces the wrath of the Father, and he's distressed. It's the same kind of, that's the same sort of distress, the same flavor. It's the same word that Paul uses to speak of Epaphroditus. He's tore all to pieces. He wants to get back and serve you. He wants to get back and provide an update. Paul says he almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me. Paul says, I couldn't have handled the death. I couldn't have handled the, the loss. Here I am in prison. I'm struggling my needs are being met by others, and that's great, but this is a tough situation. To see Epaphroditus become sick was tough enough, and now also if I would have seen him die, it would have been sorrow upon sorrow, grief upon grief. And he says, it could have always been worse. It could always be worse, but God was kind. God had mercy. Furthermore, he says in verse 28, I am now the more eager to send him to you. Therefore, that you, may receive, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. He had intended to send Epaphroditus back at, at some point, but now he's even more eager to do so. He's healed up and he wants to see you, church. He wants to be with you. Dying to see his brothers. Not dying from a sickness any longer. Look at verse 29. Paul says, so receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died 
for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now, we're not exactly sure. There's a couple things that are being, that uh, church scholars speculate over this passage. One is, at what point in time, what time of the year did this guy, Epaphroditus, bring this gift to Paul? Possibly during the winter. Possibly in a season where it was unwise to travel. And maybe this is the very reason why Epaphroditus has become sick. Maybe he's almost died because he risked his life and went at a time to meet Paul's need, but went at a time that was uh, hazardous to his own health. Furthermore, there's also this question, well, what is Philippi thinking about Epaphroditus? Are they thinking that he just showed up at Paul's place with the gift and then began to eat grapes and lay on the couch, feigning to be sick? Is that what's taking place? Paul is saying, not, that is not what's taking place. He says, receive him with joy and honor this man. He nearly died for the work of Christ. Paul pushes back on all of the, the, the question marks about the nature and character of Epaphroditus, and he calls them to thank God for this man and to honor him. He's accomplished the work of the Lord on their behalf. He's made a full physical recovery. He didn't die, and now he's returned by them reading this letter. We know he's returned to their fellowship, to their presence, and Paul says, thank God for him and honor that, mind, that man. Epaphroditus was deeply concerned for the Philippian church. He loved that church, and he, like Paul, was willing to pour his life out, literally, to even die for this church, Philippi. Let me ask you a question this morning. Epaphroditus was willing to die for the work there in Philippi, the work that Paul was a part of as he ministered to the churches, even from prison. He was willing to die for that. Let me ask you, what are you willing to live for? What are you willing to live for? Epaphroditus poured his life out for the flourishing of the church, and he said, it is worth it. Christ loved the church. He gave his own life for it. Jesus' life's work was the church, is the church. He's the eternal Son of God. That is different. That is special. It points to the fact that the church is valuable. And Epaphroditus says, I'm willing to lay my life down for that. I'm willing to die for it. The question I would ask you, again, is are you willing to live for the church? Are you willing to follow Jesus' example just as Paul, just as Timothy, and just as this man Epaphroditus did? There's often talk about this willingness to die for something. It's romantic. It sounds epic. It's the stuff of great stories. And make no mistake, there are men and women today who are willing to follow Jesus even to their death. And they, in many ways, are heroes. They are fantastic role models. And yet at the same time, God has, by His kindness and grace, we would assume, not allowed or called many of us to die for our faith. And yet He does call us to live for our faith. And while it sounds romantic to die for something Would you be willing to just live for this? Would you be willing to live for the church? Right now in Afghanistan, there are pastors and church members that are having to make difficult decisions, many of them already having given their lives in death, to the point of death, to serve the church, to prepare sermons, to gather and pray. 
to teach others, to disciple, to disseminate gospel information and gospel teaching. And yet, again, many of us have not been called to actually lay our lives down and suffer at the hands of persecutors and in the mouths of lions. But many of us, if not all of us, have been called to live for Christ. And what does Christ care about? What does Christ care about? Jesus Christ cares about His church. And I pray that you do as well. I pray that you do as well. Hagerstown Church, would you pour out your life? Pour it out for the flourishing of the gospel. Why? Because it is worth it. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning, we look to the cross of Christ. And in a sense, we see the price tag, the price tag that was placed on your church. Jesus, you laid your life down to purchase us, to purchase the universal, collective, eternal church that manifests itself in these local outposts, these local churches. Father, we see this morning not just Christ laying his life down, but as Paul sees Jesus as a role model, he laid his life down as well. He highlights these other two brothers that still shine in our night sky. Father, we ask that you would raise us up to follow after these men, to love Christ, to repent of our sins, and to pour out our lives as drink offerings for your church. Jesus, it is absolutely worth it. And we pray that that would take place here in Hagerstown and around the world. We ask that these things be done, Jesus, in your name. Amen.